Hi, everybody. This is Mark Iskowitz, MMM Executive Editor, and welcome to the MMM Podcast. I'm thrilled today to welcome our guest, Carolyn McGill. She's CEO and board member for Ation. And uh, we're, we've been trying to get Carolyn for the last several months. So, again, thrilled to have you here. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so happy to be having this conversation. Great. And uh, we'll get to the interview with Carolyn in, in a second. Just a couple of housekeeping items uh, to go through. MMM's first annual 40 Under 40 list will be revealed on online on February 11th. Uh, speaking of which, tickets for the 40 Under 40 event are on sale now. And the event takes place on May 12 in New York City. And applications for another new event, the MMM Pitch Slam, are open until February 20th. Um, and last but not least, next month is uh, Data Month at MMM. And besides our February issue, which for the last couple of years has been dubbed the Data Issue, thanks to its focus on healthcare data and analytics as it pertains to healthcare marketing, throughout the month we'll be featuring a number of guests on this podcast who have a unique perspective on data. And we're getting an early start with Carolyn. So, Carolyn, again, welcome. Thank you. Uh, I thought it'd be very interesting uh, for myself and for listeners to talk about your background. You know, I love to interview people who have touched uh, different healthcare worlds. And, uh, you know, you've worked on the payer side, the provider side, and, and biopharma. Tell us a little bit about how you arrived at Ation and take us through those different worlds. Yeah, I'm very happy to. And Ation, I feel like, is the culmination of a quest I've been on for a number of years. And uh, it's I'm happy with the the way that that journey unfolded because I don't know that I would have appreciated it as much except for of having had those experiences. Mm -hmm. So I was with a, a large national payer for a long time at United Health Group. I worked mm -hmm. on Medicare special needs plans. Can't so, get much bigger than that. <laughs> for uh, So these are health plans for people who have multiple chronic illnesses, the two that I worked on, multiple chronic illnesses, and then people who had limited income, so Medicare okay. and Medicaid. Tremendous experience. You mm -hmm. can imagine, especially at an organization like that, where every 18 to 24 months there was this new big challenge or something to learn, and they'd be like, hey, you, you know, go, go try mm -hmm. it. And uh, that meant that I had the good fortune of working nationally with uh, leaders on creating special needs plans and thinking about vulnerable populations and how best mm -hmm. to serve them. That mm -hmm. also meant that we had a platform to collaborate with CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, with congressional staffers on how to shape special needs plans and how to work with populations who were underserved. And then I had the opportunity to lead a Medicaid health plan as the chief operating officer, still with United Health Group. Mm -hmm. And when I did that and got out to one of the markets, it was New Jersey, I got closer to physicians, closer to patients, and I realized how hard it can be to affect change when you're part of a health insurance company. And I had the opportunity to join Evelyn Health, which is a population health management company. It was a startup in its very early days at the time. But the idea was let's create solutions on behalf of health systems and push that out across payers. Made a ton of sense to me. I went over to, uh, to Evalent. I worked with these health systems, learned so much about what it means to operate large physician groups, uh, organizations that have potentially grown by acquisitions, health systems that had maybe they were all on one EMR, but different instances of the same EMR. Mm -hmm. How do you get them to talk to each other? Um, how do you really drive systemic change over multiple years? And uh, hmm. then I had the opportunity to look at things in a much more micro way, meaning that instead of thinking about affecting change in this transition from volume to value 
over multiple years to think about it in more discrete time periods. And this was super important to me because I like the idea of driving behavioral change in a way that feels like a no-brainer to the people involved. And they understand not only why they're doing something differently with the patient who's sitting in front of them, but also what it means to them in the practice of their care. So the answer for me in that regard was bundled payments. Mm-hmm. which ask physicians and clinicians to look at the patient in front of them and think about what's going to happen to them over the next, call it, 90 days mm-hmm. and make decisions that are supportive of what they need after a surgery, as an example. Is it mm-hmm. appropriate to send them home? Do they have a caregiver? Do they have stairs to navigate? Might they need the support of a skilled nursing facility? If they do go to a SNF, which one is best for their needs? Mm-hmm. And so I loved mm-hmm. how discreet it made it. But the challenge I had is that that made it almost too focused because Mm -hmm. we excluded drugs. Mm -hmm. So we were supporting a Medicare population but not thinking about the medications that they were taking as part of this transition in a holistic, systemic way, at least not the way the the bundle payment for care improvement program had been structured at the time. And so when I got the call for Ation, it was from the same people who had recruited me into Evelyn Health. It was Trevor Price from Oxion. And he said, well, I think we have found the company for you. And, you know, he was right because Ation has built a platform that uses data and science to help unlock the impact that a clinical intervention has on specific subsets of the population. So people over the age of 65, women of childbearing age, people who have diabetes and COPD versus diabetes and CHF. What does that mean for their individual experiences? And what was so exciting for me about Ation is that we were in our early days. We had a platform that was proven scientifically and that needed to be scaled across stakeholders. So like I said, having worn the provider hat, the payer hat previously gave me the opportunity to understand just how critical it is to ground our decisions in science. Mm-hmm. And uh, you crossed into the biopharma area earlier in your career with PwC, right? You did a little strategy consulting, from what I understand. I I decided not to go back all 20-plus years. You're right. But in the early days, I was with PricewaterhouseCoopers, and that's how I actually, way before that, I was working on public policy and nuclear weapons, so I didn't want to go that far back. But PwC helped introduce me to healthcare, and that was tangible, and it had a big public policy component, which is something I'm pretty passionate about. And then I actually left PwC, went to another consulting firm, and that's where I consulted for Amgen. This was in the late 90s. And that's what really cemented the idea that I would focus my time on healthcare. But I honestly needed to, I think, have experienced the payer side of things, the provider side of things, to now come back to the pharma space, because you're right, biopharma manufacturers license our platform to transform real-world data into what we consider to be decision-grade, real-world evidence to make decisions about safety and effectiveness throughout a drug development life cycle. And we are now matching that with the necessity on behalf of payers to make decisions about which medications and treatments are most appropriate for the people who are specifically enrolled in their health plans. And then ultimately the goal is to bring all of these stakeholders together in the context of paying for outcome versus fee-for-service in the context of drugs, which we really haven't done in a holistic way to date as an industry. Hmm. So um, 
you know, I also wanted to ask you, um, since you, you brought up the ATON platform, the data platform, what would you say makes it unique from some of the other uh, big data healthcare analytics platforms we see in healthcare these days? So there are a few things that make the ATON Evidence platform unique and indeed are what attracted me to the organization. The first relates to the scientific validity. Our founders are Harvard Medical School trained professors who are expert in causal inference models. That's a fancy way of saying what impact did this drug have when this patient population took it. And they built a platform that brings transparency. This is the second thing I would mention. So it's the scientific validity and then the transparency of how we construct the studies to arrive at an answer about the impact that a clinical treatment has on a patient population. And this transparency means it's very clear what measures and assumptions were chosen to evaluate the impact that a clinical treatment had. And then at the end of every study that one runs on the platform, the platform automatically generates a Word document, which means even someone who grew up in the the payer and at-risk provider space can read it, that lists out, well, these are the diagnosis codes that were covered. These were the measures that we looked at. This is how we controlled for confounding variables. So rather than having to slip through 10,000 lines of code, which was the alternative before the ATON Evidence Platform came onto the market, to say, oh, how did you look at time? If there was a a drug where someone took it on April 1st and on April 2nd they had a hospitalization, does that count against the, the drug? Or does that, the costs and et cetera, does that not count against it? Because clearly the drug couldn't have had an impact that quickly. Those are the kinds of assumptions that one makes in these types of assumptions uh, in studies that when you're looking at large populations have a huge impact on your result. And so the second thing I would note is that ATON is uh, very clear on the methodology that we use and the way in which someone comes to a conclusion on the platform as clear as a a Word document to read. And then the third thing I would say relates to the relationships we've been able to form across the industry. So we are positioned not only with respect to the credibility we have garnered in the scientific community who works in biopharma, but we have also gotten traction within the payer and at-risk provider community who are making decisions about what drugs to put on a formulary, who are thinking about their specific population in a particular zip code, particular age range, particular combination of chronic illnesses, where they don't care about what's in a national data set. They want to know this impact there. And we've been able to bridge those stakeholder concerns in a very compelling way. And then the last thing I would mention is the relationship that we've built with regulators. The FDA, in partnership with Brigham and Women's Hospital up at Harvard Medical School, are using the platform to replicate 37 clinical trials to see the extent to which we can use data and real-world evidence to make decisions about safety and effectiveness, and frankly, to also shed light on where it maybe isn't appropriate. And we're mm-hmm. very happy to bring transparency across that spectrum. Sure. So you, you mentioned the uh, the last thing, the, the working alongside the FDA and the Brigham on this RCT duplicate uh, initiative where you're trying to 
take 30 clinical trials that have already been completed and see if you can duplicate those results using real-world evidence. And then you added seven more that have yet to read out, right, uh, exactly. to, to get to 37, which is unprecedented, too, to use RWE to try to um, replicate the, the results of something that hasn't read out yet. Uh, so can you give me an update on that? How's that going? Absolutely. So we are about a year and a half in to a three-year study. Actually, we're, yeah, we're approaching the, the end. Actually, maybe two and a half years in. i got to work on my math here. It was um, the fall of 2017, so excuse me. Um, we do expect the completion to be this fall. And the FDA has been very clear that they expect to release guidelines in 2021. Fingers crossed, you know, they'll, they'll err on the earlier side. We're really pleased with what we found. You may actually be familiar with one of the test cases that we did this summer, where researchers used our platform to replicate the Carolina study that Boeringer Ingelheim conducted for a cardiovascular outcomes trial. And what was fascinating about that is that there was a fair amount of intrigue for the pharmacoepi world. We released our results, uh, or I should say researchers released results on a Friday. And then on the Monday, BI researchers released their results at the, at the DIA conference. And they were relatively consistent. They also fed a fair amount of debate about how and when it's appropriate to use RWE for these kinds of decisions. And we embrace that kind of dialogue because we think that's the way that we identify where is there a no-brainer example where claims data as an example is sufficient, and we have tons of claims data at our fingertips, or this plus a structured extract from an EHR as an example, helps us assess the impact that this drug had on different cohorts within a patient population who may be responding differently, not having to incur the costs and the amount of time and the wear and tear on patient lives, the drag on clinicians, to track them over time. So we thought that that was a phenomenal way to start to test how RWE can have a tremendous impact in practice. Mm-hmm. So the, the your uh, trial, as I understand it, found non-inferiority as well, but maybe to a lesser extent uh, than the uh, Lilly BI folks did for Trigenta. Uh, and, and as you said, uh, it is a fairly um, you know polarizing topic. There are those who are really passionate about you know not wanting to use uh, real-world evidence to make clinical decisions. Uh, but the FDA has a mandate from Congress, right, uh, as part of the Cures Act, to explore this. Uh, so, um, you know, how, how is the how is the project thus far informing FDA standards for using real world evidence in regulatory decisions? Well, the FDA referenced the work that they're doing with us in their guidance that they released earlier this year, or maybe I, now I have to work on my years here. So it would have been probably late in twenty. Um, 18 early in 2019. So we know that it figures heavily into the analyses that they're doing, not only with us, but in other aspects of, uh, of decision making as well. They're doing a lot with oncology too. And we're very pleased to see that they are pressure testing what it means to accept an RWE study. What might the standards look like in terms of transparency? How do we potentially change the parameters of a data study that come to us as a regulator to be confident that the question wasn't asked in just a certain way to yield a certain answer? So might I want to change assumptions relative to diagnosis codes? Or might I, as a regulator, want to consider other measures? Or am I curious whether certain confounders 
control, were controlled for or not. And so we believe that having a platform like ours can help support mm -hmm. that very rapid fire analytic back and forth to identify how and when it's appropriate to use these. Now, I expect from the standards perspective there to be guidance about transparency, about methodology. There have been uh, lots of great discussions here in recent months where the FDA has shared when uh, you know they're, they're emphasizing fit-for-purpose data as an example or a mortal person time bias getting in the way, a confounding variable getting in the way of research results. So we are close students of what they're saying in those contexts so we can understand how and when it's sufficient to use these data analyses and then when is it breaking down, when is it not garnering the credibility. So we expect the FDA and other regulators actually around the world to start putting stakes in the ground in terms of what they will accept and under what circumstances. Fascinating, yeah. And so where do you see real-world evidence carving out a niche for itself? And in what therapeutic areas is it most accepted? So first I would say we expect real-world evidence to take a foothold in safety. So when there are post-marketing requirements, as an example, and this cuts across therapeutic areas, we collect data through our healthcare system, through claims databases, through EHR. And what I love most about these data is that they are at our fingertips, and it's exciting to talk about data that we have yet to collect and how we might link it, et cetera. But just to recognize the volume of insights we can draw from what we have access to today and what that can mean in the form of potentially obviating the need for a CVOT, as an example. Uh, when we start thinking about which takes TAs, years, right? which takes years, and, and I have to be wary of my acronyms here, cardiovascular outcomes, outcomes trial, trial yeah. Yeah. which is part of a post-marketing requirement that sometimes uh, drugs are accountable for. And we think that we have these data, so let's use it. Which Those the, are was, hundreds that, was that of, part of the Avandia fallout? Was that the, there was a mandate that you know diabetes manufacturers had to start do, doing these CVOTs, and uh, they, they do take years to 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 run and to read out. But now they've become standard practice, mm -hmm. and and uh, actually, actually they're being incorporated into, into drug labels. But and, anyway, and by the way, they make sense, right? Because mm -hmm. we want to get better insights about populations that maybe aren't represented in a clinical trial or situations mm -hmm. that occur to us in our daily lives that when you're in a more controlled setting have less of an impact. But once we're out in the real world, oof, you know, that side effect really threw me for a loop. Mm -hmm. Or I didn't want to be tired for my daughter's birthday so I just didn't take it. Uh, or nuances about dosing and, and what's most appropriate for me that we can study better potentially in the real world once a drug is already on the market. So it gives us access to those kinds of insights as well. Um, so I mentioned safety because, of course, that cuts across multiple therapeutic areas. We do see a fair amount of traction in oncology and rare disease as well. And these are places where it's maybe unconscionable to have a control arm or we just have populations that are too small to support more conventional studies. So using data helps us to supplement them. It's interesting that, you know, you, you're going into the rare disease space with this. One can understand in a population health area like cardiovascular or diabetes where you've got that cohort size, but in the rare disease area, you know, you, I guess you, you have to do a heavy degree of extrapolation perhaps. Yeah, or maybe we're using a historical control arm. Mm -hmm. So we see a, an intervention 
administered to a population. And rather than rounding up an equal number of people who aren't able to participate or receive that treatment, we're able to match those characteristics in a population uh, previously. So a historical mm-hmm. control arm is what we call that. So mm-hmm. we're using data in that context to supplement that trial. Great. Are you, you mentioned the, the Lilly BI example. Uh, are there any other examples that uh, you could share with us today? So I won't mention the specific ones. We mentioned there's 37 that are underway with the FDA, and then we're working with a number of other clients. And so as we publish, and as you might imagine with our academic roots, we are prolific in that regard. As we continue to publish, we will continue to share specific examples. But there are some great ones where McLean Hospital Researchers, as an example, used our platform to look at the impact of ADHD drugs on children. And that, of course, is also an underrepresented population. And we're continuing to work with the FDA and our clients to expand the boundaries and the understanding of when RWE insights can help to drive understanding of the impact. Another great example would be actually initiated on behalf of payers. So this is in work we did with Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield of New Jersey on the diabetes population. So this wasn't a trial, but it was an opportunity to look at medication use within this population And we actually found, counterintuitive to some of our payer 101 mindset, that a subset of the population should actually be on a higher cost therapy sooner because it was the right treatment for them with respect to their clinical outcomes and the impact that it had on the total cost of care. And then we use that study to become the basis of conversations that they're having with biopharma manufacturers to understand then well, how might we measure the impact that this other class of drugs could have on this patient population? And how do we collaborate with physicians and others in our community to ensure people are really taking the medications that are most appropriate for them? So it's not just in the trial space where we're starting to see impact every day. Wow, so that was a counterintuitive uh, finding. Fascinating. Thank you for sharing those. Um, So as... uh, Real-world evidence is used to capture more of a robust view of the patient experience. Um, How do we ensure that patient privacy needs are met? Patient privacy is so important, and we're very happy to see the increasing recognition about how data are being used and the ownership people are starting to be empowered to take with respect to those data uses. Much of the analyses that are done on our platform are done in a de-identified way. The insights that we are garnering are population-based. That means that we can not look at personally identifiable health information and still understand the characteristics of a population who would be better served by a different treatment or understand the impact of treatments that they are experiencing. And we find that even when we work with health insurance organizations, with at-risk providers as an example, we de-identify the data We do our analyses, and then the extent to which it's appropriate to reach out to a patient or support them as they receive care, then the data are re-identified and that outreach can occur. But from the analytics work we do, much of it is with de-identified population level data. And I think what's most important is that we continue to become more and more transparent with people 
as we contemplate using data, what data are we collecting from them, how is it used and replicated, especially as we start considering ways to take into account socioeconomic information, data from wearables, Fitbits, and you know other ways that we're starting to collect data, it's very critical that people are kept informed. Mm-hmm. Great, great. Um, turning our attention to the future for a moment, how do you uh, expect uh, real-world evidence to change the way drugs are developed and approved? We expect real-world evidence to inform understanding of where there are gaps in treatment for populations that exist. So I mentioned a couple of them before, but women of childbearing age or children or people over the age of 65 with different combinations of comorbidities are great examples of people who are underrepresented in clinical trials. And so we expect real-world evidence to inform, as it already is starting to do, how best to support those underserved populations. We also expect us to make better decisions about how to identify those subsets of the population that will respond best to a clinical treatment, which means we can potentially be more targeted in our early uh, trials, as an example, which means that it could be less expensive to conduct a trial, which of course helps to bring down the total cost of acquiring these drugs on behalf of patients you know, down the line. And then as we move through that drug development life cycle, we expect real-world evidence to inform decisions about safety and effectiveness and to do it quickly, reliably, and at a more affordable way than mm-hmm. some of the more conventional methods out there. Great. Makes a whole lot of sense. Should we shift gears for a moment and uh, switch to the lightning round? Sure. Okay. Um, so uh, really quick here, uh, what's on your daily reading list? So some of the things that I really enjoy reading include articles by Matt Herper, who we find to be a phenomenal thinker on some of the toughest issues that uh, we're facing today. And then I'll tell you what, I never miss a chance to read an editorial by Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who recently joined our board of directors. He, of course, is the former FDA commissioner, Mm -hmm. and he is quite prolific in his editorials. And we find presents a a balanced, well-thought-out view that's informed also by perspective that's been shaped from sitting on different sides of the healthcare industry over the years. I'm a fan of both of those individuals, so thanks for mentioning. Who do you think uh, is or are the smartest people in data science these days? Jeremy Rassen and Sebastian Schneeweiss, my founders, are certainly among them. And, I, you know, there are a number of other people who have been prolific publishers, and we really appreciate the dedication to science What's been most fun about the data scientists that we've gotten to collaborate with as part of our work at Ation is that we have worked with incredible thinkers within biopharma. We have worked with incredible thinkers within the payer community, certainly within the FDA. So we think about uh, bringing those stakeholders together in this kind of a context, and you start to appreciate how much appreciation there is for science and how credible people are in their areas of expertise and how mostly what we need to do is bring people out and bring them together in a way that they can start collaborating with a new and dependable language. Hmm. 
and your, I'm sure you draw on your experience of uh, working across stakeholders uh, every day. Absolutely, and yeah. as my experience as a middle child. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> we have to bring everything to bear, yeah, there right? There you go. I'm sure there's a lot of revelations, uh, personally and professionally. <laughs> okay, finally, uh, what do you do to unwind? Well, it is wintertime, and I love to ski. And the big highlights of my winter this winter are that I'm bringing nieces and nephews of mine who have only ever skied in New Hampshire to ski out west for the first time. So we are going to spend some time skiing at a mountain called Snowbird in Utah. And I am just so excited. It will be their uh, February vacation to see the looks on their faces when they see that mountain and experience that snow for the first time. And no ice. No ice. The, the <laughs> silence when you ski and that uh-huh. kind of powder is just absolute magic. I've heard it. I've heard it's wonderful. <laughs> I wish you a lot of powder. Thank you. <laughs> and, uh, and thank you for coming in today. I uh, really appreciate it again. And uh, as real world evidence finds its footing uh, in healthcare, we look forward to hearing more great things from Etienne. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I appreciate the conversation. Great. Sure. Of course. And uh, thanks, everybody. Uh, this is Marcus Goods from MMM signing off. We'll see you next time. <laughs>